I sure have contributed to this view that uh, pediatricians just play with kids all day, play with healthy kids all day. But there are plenty of challenging diagnoses and treatment plans that we encounter on a regular basis. We might get kids with anemia or fever of unknown origin or chronic abdominal pain and behavioral issues. So there is a lot to think about every day and being that point person to advocate for our healthy habits, we're dealing for so, with so much more than just well-child care. Welcome, everyone, to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey, everybody. I am Ross Tannick, third-year medical student. This is the Primary Care Podcast. This episode is with Dr. Dow. She's a pediatrician and also a mentor and teacher of mine. I think you'll be able to feel her energy and her love of teaching and talking about the issues that pertain to her field of pediatrics. I'm excited because she's the first pediatrician that we've had on to grace the Primary Care Podcast, and I'm really happy she did because... It's my impression that when people talk about the primary care specialties in medicine, pediatrics maybe goes under-discussed. And of course, the goal of this podcast is to explore as many different aspects of primary care medicine as I can. Speaking of which, and before we dive deeper into this episode, the next episode of the podcast is with a very interesting guest. Dr. Wendy Sinta, and she'll be on representing the Obesity Medicine Association, the OMA. She is a past president of the organization and a fellow of the OMA, and she's also a family medicine trained doctor who practices medical weight loss. She's board certified in obesity medicine, and I am requesting of you to, uh, hear what kinds of questions and topics you have for her. So please send them my way if you have any questions about either family practice, um, child obesity, adult obesity, just obesity medicine in general, medical weight loss, or any other related topic, send them my way to the primary care podcast at gmail.com. And I will discuss those with Dr. Sinta. The deadline for that is October 24th. So now let's get back into talking about my talk with Dr. Dow. She really is a a great ambassador to her field of pediatric medicine and a really strong proponent of women in medicine. She's also a prolific artist and a children's book author and illustrator. We actually talk about her work in children's literature a little bit during the podcast. And actually right now I have a tab open as we speak. I'm looking her up on the website of the tattered cover, 
which is a local bookstore here in Denver, just by searching her uh, name, which is in the title of the of the podcast itself, Dao Pumi Rook. Uh, she mentioned that she tries to promote and support the smaller local bookstores when she can. So I thought I'd do the same and plug the tattered cover and their website. Um, so we uh, can all get on that and uh, support our guest, And by doing so, we're supporting the show. Okay, so Dr. Dow and I covered a lot of ground in our discussion of her life and career as a pediatrician. We began, as always, by getting a little bit of her life story and her early years, which I find super fascinating. We then discussed career pathways that one can take after being trained in pediatrics. For instance, what subspecialties uh, are available and how they differ from general pediatrics. Uh, we talked about her work in the PEDS ER, emergency room, as well as her outpatient primary care practice also. We talked about how preventive medicine manifests in the pediatric setting and many more clinically relevant topics that I will just let you hear for yourself. Um, we also discussed her career after clinical medicine, working at my medical school, Rocky Vista University, as a professor of clinical medicine and how she works to empower medical students to be clinical superstars and also professionally respected future doctors. And she's a, a big proponent of women in medicine, uh, like I said before, but also we talked about uh, diversity in medicine towards the end of the podcast. Um, so I will uh, just about kick it off here. Oh, actually, you know what? I have one more note to give, which is that uh, Dr. Dow wanted me to clarify one specific point that came up in our discussion of this topic uh, of, uh, of women in medicine towards the end of the show. And as we discuss the nature of how a student or a doctor comes off and gives impressions to others, uh, it's super important for everyone in the field to act and speak with confidence. And this is true no matter your sex, gender, or the pitch of your voice, which uh, if that doesn't make sense to you, then uh, it will once you listen to uh, the, the full interview. So that's good advice, I think, for everybody to uh, be confident and assertive, uh, especially in the field of medicine. And that's something I'll try to be more cognizant of myself in the future. Um, and overall, she encourages students entering the field of medicine to follow their interests rather than financial opportunities in guiding them to find their path in their career in medicine. So now, let us get to the show. Here is my talk with the great Dr. Dow. I'm in my studio, Dr. Dow. Where are you right now? I'm in my husband's office because I work in the family room. So I don't have a door. I can't close it or nearly close it. <laughs> okay. So I've taken over for the weekend. That's awesome. And and you got a little dog running around? Yes. Yes. You might see him. He's a new part of the family, a pooch, a pandemic pooch. Oh, really? 
What yes. uh, what kind of dog is it? He's a little terrier poodle mix, and it's the first dog for our family ever. So he's training us. That's awesome. Well, um, that's a good start because I wanted to kind of start with uh, just talking a little bit about you and your background, your childhood, your upbringing, and how you first got the the twinkle in your eye for medicine. Um, so maybe we can start with that and and introduce yourself to uh, the audience. I know you as Dr. Dow, but right. uh, I'm I'm kind of terrified to <laughs> give a shot at your real your full name. So maybe you can uh, just introduce yourself and uh, start from the beginning. You. Yeah, I can help you with that. T.M. Dao Pumirak is my full name. And I go by Dao, which is the root of my first name. It means star in Thai, in case you're interested. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> but everyone calls me Dr. Dao, and I'm fine with that. Pumirak has a silent H that throws everyone off. So as far as my background, I was born in Thailand, in Bangkok, Thailand. And I came to the States when I was very young. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a part of the Royal Thai Air Force. And this was an elite small group of fighter pilots. And he flew F-5 planes when they were brand new back in the day. There was a nursing shortage in the United States back in the early 70s. And it was really easy for my mom to get to get a green card to immigrate to America. And she wanted a better life. Her sister, who was also a nurse, was already living in Chicago. And so she decided to come along. I think we started over in America because my dad was an alcoholic and partied way too much with his Air Force friends. Wow. And so, yeah, so my mom actually pretty much had had enough. So I never really hear the true story, but this is what I hear in passing. Right. She left us all behind in Thailand, which your, your must Your mom have, left to yeah. come to the States alone. Yeah, she lived okay. with, with her sister in right. Chicago, and she worked. And I know the, that they made so much more money as a, compared to Thai bot money. It, it really, you can't even compare. So a lot of people would come to America to make money, send it home to Thailand, and then dream of going back home to Thailand one day. Yeah. But in any case, she left them. And I'm sure that must have broken her heart to leave her two toddlers behind. Yeah. And my dad was okay, though, because back in Thailand, there is a lot of extended family that will help you raise your children. And they have nannies and housekeepers because the cost of labor is so, so cheap. Mm -hmm. So he's fine. But eventually, my dad brought my brother and me to America about six months after my mom. So I kind of got the idea that it was a love story, that he couldn't live without her. Oh. And, and then we all became a family again here. But as an adult now, looking back, I think maybe that was just the story. But maybe six months is how long it took for them to get me a green, get us green cards as well so, to follow along and come to America. Wow. So in retrospect, yeah, I, I think that was a really smart decision on her part because I grew up with a with a happy childhood, really, in America. And I don't think that would have happened in Thailand because my dad would, like, drive his motorcycle drunk and crash it and dive into the shallow pool or something, and he got a concussion from that. He would just be a little much, and I don't know that he would have lived to be 80 like he did. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so he came over, brought you, and you, you said your sibling, your sister? My older brother. Older brother. And he... Uh, then met back up with your mother? Uh-huh. And uh, we, when I was growing up, I never saw him 
where, I mean, twice, I think I saw him drunk. That was it. And the whole rest of the time, he just had such a high tolerance for alcohol that he was always a happy person to be around. So again, I, all I remember is a happy childhood and being pretty well adjusted, which is good. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's, that sounds like a pretty eventful story. Um, yeah. and you moved, did you move straight to Chicago? Yeah, Skokie, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And when I was young, I thought that America was 50% Jewish because mm-hmm. Skokie is 90% Jewish. We'd have all the Jewish holidays off and all my friends are Jewish. So it was different than the rest of the country. We moved to Texas eventually. And yeah. then I was like, wow, everyone. There's a little Jews. less Jews in Texas than yes, yeah. <laughs> in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> but back to how I got on the path of medicine. Yeah. Because they started over and were poor, and because of her life experience with my dad, my mom, for as long as I could remember, pushed me to become a strong and independent woman. She wanted me to be able to take care of myself, take care of my family if I had to, and she was certainly one of the strongest and smartest women I will ever know. And since she was in healthcare as a nurse, she dreamed of me becoming a doctor to be a leader in Mm -hmm. the healthcare system. Uh, We have lots of nurses and pilots in the family. As a funny aside, the nursing school and the Air Force Academy were next door to each other in Thailand, in Bangkok. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of pairings from mixers. Right, I bet. But anyway, we had no doctors in our family yet. And I think in our mind's eye, this was a secure and respectable profession. I agreed. And as I grew up and got good grades, it made sense for me to choose medicine. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom coming home sometimes and she'd tell me stories about her night shifts at, in nursing. And I found them pretty fascinating. So that's how I got into medicine. Was there something that she said or did specifically that uh, was very encouraging for your, your development as a leader or your passion to be um, a nurse or a physician? She had such a strong personality. So she pretty much told me everything I should do and ran a really tight ship. So I, and I was pretty compliant with everything, but more than anything, she just instilled in me this, this need to be independent and strong and being a doctor was all that, Mm -hmm. you know, being a leader in your field and managing care of patients, things like that, that just made sense to me. It all fit together with the persona that she wanted me to fill. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that there wasn't just one phrase that she kept repeating. It was the the whole, I don't know, gestalt of what she was putting forward and and trying to get you to understand. She, She was a feminist before her time, really. And it's unusual for women from Thailand back in that day when it was, it's a very chauvinistic old fashioned society. So she's pretty remarkable. That's amazing. Um, So she encouraged you to be a doctor, but you did first go into nursing school. Is that right? Yeah, I knew I'd have to explain that. So just because <laughs> I agreed to go to medical school, well, didn't mean I would take the most direct path. Got it. So I told you she was strong-willed. And so I had a sheltered childhood, basically. So when I left for college, I had a lot of growing up to do. And I lost my way for a while, changed majors a few times. And I remember calling my mom. I think it was at the middle of sophomore year. I'm like, Mom, I can't do this. I can't. I can't go to medical school. It's too hard. 
And I told her, I, I think I'll just be a nurse. Is that all right? And she's like, there, there. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> and I'm sure she was like screaming on the inside. But uh, that didn't last too long. Uh, before finishing nursing school, I figured out that I really was meant to be a doctor and it became my biggest dream ever. In rotations for nursing school, I was more interested in diagnosis and management mm -hmm. than in the nursing care. And why were we using this antibiotic? And why are we put using a G-tube feed for this person? And in nursing, you really aren't able to make diagnoses per se. It's just care plans and how are you going to care for that patient? Yeah. So I studied for the MCAT and finished my prerequisites and uh, my meandering had thrown me a semester off track. So I graduated a semester later in December and I had six months to kill before medical school started. And that's when I worked as a nurse on the medical surgical floor with orthopedics overflow at Irving Hospital in Texas. Mm -hmm. And um, coincidentally, my mom was there as a nurse years before. Uh, and what I found was being a nurse was really hard for me. Mm -hmm. And this is because it became one of my biggest life lessons. I didn't really try that hard in undergrad. Again, I was still finding myself and finding my way. Yeah. So getting my nursing degree, I just, I just did it. I had fair grades enough to get into medical school. But at, as I worked as a nurse, I worked the three to 11 shift and I would worry so much that I was going to do something wrong. That three to 11 shift made it so I'd come home, eat, and then go to bed. And I would dream about nursing every night. Oh, and no, it that's was not so, good. It was so bad. It was so stressful. <laughs> I realized, though, that uh, in my future as a doctor, I'd be managing these patients. I'd be actually in charge of these patients. They would trust me, and I needed to be competent and as smart as the next guy. So I started medical school and knew I had to do my best. There's just no way I would live my life like I did with as a nurse who really didn't study hard and know what I was doing. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. So, yeah, I relate to that a little bit in a, in kind of my own way, a different way, which is that I was a, an EMT for a little bit. And then as I was kind of deciding I wanted to go to medical school, same kind of thing. I was like, mm, I don't even know if I'm that good at this part of it. And how am I going to get to the next level and be good at that where I'm actually the one in charge? It, it's definitely a scary step, but yeah. you kind of just, uh, it's a long process. So you have time to work your way up to, you know, being, being, uh, the person in charge. Yeah. Yeah. It's responsibility. It's growing up and, and feeling accountable and being surrounded by other smart people with the same goal and knowing that we all need to do our best because all human beings deserve excellent care mm -hmm. and you are the one that's going to be providing that. And so you can't slack. You have to do your best in medical school. Yeah. And you, you say all human beings deserve excellent care, but you chose to go into a specialty where you're caring for <laughs> a, a, a very small subset of people, of, uh, or, may, right, or right. maybe not that small of a subset of the, the population, <laughs> but how did uh, you come to pick pediatrics to, uh, to study and, and be your career? 
Well, let's see. I didn't think I was going to go into pediatrics because in nursing school, I actually had a bad egg as a preceptor for my peds rotation. And it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I really didn't like peds. This was, this was in nursing school, not med school. Yeah. Okay. In nursing school. But when I got to clinical rotations as a medical student, I loved it. It was my favorite because kids are just so adorable all the time. They don't even try and they just are. However, Although I love the kids, I was hesitant to give up all the other super interesting fields I had learned about. Dermatology was on my list and OB-GYN was on my list. And then internal medicine, it just is what I think of as the epitome of being a doctor. You learn, you use all the pathophysiology that you've learned in medical school. So it it feels like you give up 75% of what you've learned in med school to choose pediatrics because it's a specialty, like heart failure. I don't need to know that. And managing COPD, I don't need to know any of that. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but uh, (laughs) that really made me think of kind of cutting things off at the pass really early. Not that every pediatrician is really in the position to do that, but um, you definitely can affect people's long-term health outcomes, even though you're not really dealing on a day-to-day basis with these chronic diseases. And that's kind of something that's always on my mind. And we don't have to go there just yet. We can kind of work our way there <laughs> through this interview. But um, since we just got there naturally, I was wondering what your your thoughts on on that sort of long-term prevention and how that plays into your practice or, or the practice of any pediatrician? It really is the top priority for pediatricians to, to uh, administer pre- preventive care and anticipatory guidance. Mm-hmm. So we're always educating people. And I, I mean, if you don't do this, what's going to happen in the future? We, we are trying to produce sturdy individuals so that when life hits them hard later as adults, they can handle it. So part of raising children and taking care of them is preparing them for the world later. And I think it's so important. And so you're right. Even though I'm throwing away some of my medical education, have thrown it away, I ha- I am still contributing greatly to the health of America in general. Yeah. And so what what is kind of the role of a pre- pediatrician? Let's just say a primary care pediatrician, just for the, the sake of uh, narrowing it down a little bit. Um, in talking about, or I guess in preventing heart failure decades later or COPD decades later, or any other, you know, hypertension, diabetes, what is a pediatrician really doing for people to prevent those long-term chronic diseases? Oh, for the most part, we do a lot of well-child care, and this includes checking on them, making sure they're growing and developing developing properly, uh, but included in well child care is education and anticipatory guidance. So what we'll talk to them about is how to take care of their bodies. And that can start at a very young age, brushing their teeth, and that will prevent dental problems as an adult and eating healthy foods and and exercising and all these other safety uh, guidance that we give to wear your helmets and wear your seatbelts and 
And then at the same time, we talk to the parents. Hey, do you smoke in the home or are there any smokers in the home? And we touch on that with the parents. And as a result, the children can watch that interaction and see that we're promoting as healthy a lifestyle for all the family as we possibly can. So that's our that's our work, well, child care for the most part. Yeah. And you mentioned talking to parents. You mentioned talking to the patients themselves. What do you think the breakdown is in terms of how much education you're delivering to the parents versus the, the, the pediatric patients that you're seeing? It probably depends on the age of the child. So the younger ones, of course, I, I work minimally and I, I'll listen to the heart and say, your heart is very strong and things like that where they are developmentally ready to hear this kind of information. And then we talk about, you know, you need to drink lots of water every day, not so much of the sugary fruit juices, things like that. And the parents listen along. And then eventually, if if they're young, I will talk to the parent directly a little bit more. So it's hard to say an actual percentage split, yeah. but the older they get, the more I'm talking to them. And by the time they're 13, 14, I'm pretty much ignoring the parent unless that nice. parent has questions. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, I kind of wanted to uh, explore your career okay. more and just uh, kind of break down the things that you've done and you know, the pathways that one might take to become a primary care pediatrician, which I believe that you did for a number of years in New Mexico. Is that right? Yeah, I was a general pediatrician in a private office for three years. And after that, I stayed home for a few years with my kids because we have three and it made more sense after my husband joined me in medical school on that path. And when he was a resident, I stayed home. And then after that, when I returned to clinical work, I ended up in an urgent care position mm -hmm. at Children's Hospital Parker. And what this was actually was a mid-level role, but it worked for me. We learned that with three children and two doctors as parents, it was important for one of us to always be flexible at any given time. So he would work days full time and then I would pick up an occasional urgent care shift at night from four to midnight usually. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't full time, but that way we never needed a sitter. We would just kind of try not to overlap our shifts much. Yeah. Was that, uh, was that difficult to have you both kind of, you know, uh, coordinate your schedules like that or did it, actually end up working out pretty seamlessly that worked out better than when we were both working as doctors so when he was a resident and i was initially in private practice that was crazy we'd have a nanny and other times we had in home daycare situations but as you get older and you start starting your families then you start realizing how much of a big big effort it takes to keep them happy healthy and cared for and when they have a fever and you are both doctors, who calls in sick? It was, it's very difficult. Yeah, I bet. But it's so funny to me because so many parents are both doctors, you know. I know. <laughs> so it's a pretty common problem to have. Yeah. Why do we do this to ourselves, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, it sounds like you uh, found a, a good happy medium there. You said you were a mid-level provider? Yeah, that means you were, like... And Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm a general pediatrician, board certified general pediatrician. So I have no emergency training at all. But at Children's, they need help. 
there's a first attending who is usually either an MD or a board certified emergency doctor. Mm -hmm. And then the second attendee, uh, second attending, which was my role or a nurse practitioner or a PA or another MD or DO, these people, we would help with the population because 90% of it is urgent care, right? right? It's really not all codes and resuscitations. It's right. mostly colds and earaches and things like that. Yeah. So that's what I did. And so if you take a job, you're a physician, but you take a job as a mid-level, does that come with a, a pay cut or is it kind of just scaled to the amount of hours you're working or how, how does that work? I suppose I could have negotiated for more, but I just take a pay cut with that. It was an hourly rate that was the same as the mid-level rate. Mm -hmm. If I wanted the first attending role, which some doctors did take, <clears throat> even without being a board certified emergency room doctor, they just studied and learned. I mean, you are totally qualified to run an emergency room if you're a general pediatrician, but the ones that have their fellowship training, of course, are more proficient. So I didn't feel like I wanted to put in that extra effort to learn more and run codes. I would run away from codes really. Uh, yeah. And so I stayed in that mid-level role and it, it was it was a good fit for me just because I like primary care, but I didn't want to do the day, daytime shifts like my husband. Right, right. Um, so I kind of want to talk about the pathways that one a student might take to kind of pursue some of the things that we're talking about here. To be a general pediatrician, you go to med school and then you do a peds residency, which is three years. Three years. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can do fellowships in all sorts of things, but yes. you can also just um, go straight into practice from there and, and be what is called a general pediatrician. Is that right? Yes. And um, basically, that's what I was doing for the most part. I went into private practice as a general pediatrician uh, days and seeing patients in clinic. And then later I switched to that urgent care role. And that just happened to be something that was available at Children's mm -hmm. and available in the mid-level role at Children's. I think other, uh, in big cities, you might be able to find EDs where you can work at the physician rate and physician, even without being an ED board certified uh, doctor. Okay. And so, yeah. Um, I was just going to ask, is the best way to be a pediatrician in the emergency room is to do either a emergency medicine residency and then a peds fellowship or the other way around to do a peds residency and an emergency fellowship. Either way, you're looking at about four years. Yeah, total. I think that most people that I see taking the path to becoming a peds ED doctor will be a pediatrician first. Okay. So they'll do general peds first, and then they go to their emergency peds emergency fellowship. And I think just because, like I mentioned, 90% of the ED practice is acute uh, care. It's urgent care. It's not trauma and resuscitation. So being a general pediatrician first will help you manage all those other things in the ER that aren't truly emergencies. So I think that's very helpful if you know you love pediatrics. And if you want to do emergency uh, residency first and then do PEDS emergency fellowship, you can go that route as well. But I think that you don't know most of the general PEDS stuff. I mean, it's harder to get a grasp on all of the general PEDS stuff that comes in. Yeah. So can we talk about some of the, the bread and butter diagnoses that you, you see either in clinic 
or in the ER or the urgent care, um, what are the things that we just see almost every day or every day? Right, right. Well, I mentioned well child care for sure. That's probably more than half of your day for the most part. And then as you get into respiratory season, you're going to see it all. You're going to see upper respiratory tract infections that are just cold mm-hmm. and strep pharyngitis and uh, herpangena and other viral syndromes like flu. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to be ruling out COVID as well. Yeah, that and sounds in- fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're embracing myself. Well, my I'm not clinically practicing, but I'm pra- bracing on behalf of all the people out in the workforce right now. Yeah. And then from January to March, we have the infamous RSV bronchiolitis. So bronchiolitis is just so prevalent in the very young age group during the winter. And RSV is the main cause of that in those little people. And it takes over the hospitals and clinics basically throughout. I remember you told me once that if you have the opportunity to do a peds rotation outside of January and through March, take that because in those months you're going to just see so much uh, of your percentage of, of patients is going to be bronchiolitis from uh, resp- respiratory syncytial virus, which is a tough yes, one to yes. say. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we say RSV. Yeah. Totally fine. <laughs> but that's so true. In the winter, you'll get really good at managing bronchiolitis, but you won't see some of the other things that pediatric patients come in with. So yeah, maybe maybe avoid winter. Okay. I, well, mine's coming up here. Mine's going to be Throughout, oh, good time. Oct- throughout October. Yeah, that's perfect. That's uh, a good time. Okay, good. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Um, oh, it- I guess I, I didn't finish all the other things we see. We also see yeah. gastroenteritis, UTIs, and rashes, and other things. And then in emergency, it's just um, trauma, abdominal pain, and appendicitis, things like that. Yeah, kids get into a lot of accidents. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you'll see a lot of ER doctors and pediatricians as well who say, we're never going to own a trampoline. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah. that accounts for a lot of uh, fractures as well as, let's see, in the summer, we'd see a lot of skateboard related injuries. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Trauma, lots of trauma. Kids get into all sorts of stuff. Yeah, when I was in EMT school, the, the medic who was teaching the class said, uh, all right, does anyone know why kids get into more accidents than adults and everyone was kind of puzzled and people put out answers he's like it's because they are dumb kids are dumb (laughs) (laughs) and they they do stupid things they have no wisdom they have not earned their wisdom yet (laughs) that's all right i get hurt all the time anyway and i'm not even doing dumb things or maybe i am (laughs) but um i wanted to kind of uh ask about the difference between the um First assist and the PEDS ED doc, is there much of a difference in how difficult that is as a job? I know you mentioned that you chose that job because it was kind of favorable hours. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of just working side by side, is is it better to be one than the other? It depends on how much responsibility and comfort you have uh, for emergency, true emergencies. And since I was not really in, I didn't ever want to be an emergency doctor, the urgent care type role was fine for me as a second attending. But in, in fact, I would see almost all the same types of patients, except for level one trauma and resuscitations, then I would, would not pick up those patients. But for the most part, I would see, uh, all, 
the same patients as a doctor in a second attending role. But if you're a nurse practitioner right. or PA in that same role, you might not jump on the rule out meningitis, fever, vomiting, headache, okay, yeah. and time for a spinal tap thing. So. Okay, that makes sense. So I guess I was looking at my list of questions here. The next one that I uh, have is, what do you love about primary care and emergency? And what do you hate about those two um, spe- you know, specialties or, or lines of work? Um, and you kind of just talked about what you gravitate away from, which is <laughs> yes. those big traumas and uh, <laughs> the bigger the bigger issues. And you want to work more with the more subacute care or, uh, sorry, acute um, situations with pediatrics. Yeah, I, I do like when kids get better and they feel better and I can send them home. And they're just, they're so resilient. You'll hear that a lot about kids. They just, you can fix them up, give them some ibuprofen, make them more comfortable. And they just look so much better and they go home. So I think for pediatrics in general, they the kids make you smile most times a day they can't help it they'll come in and say really funny things to you like one time I was listening to a a three or four year old's heart and I said okay I'm gonna listen to your heart now and without telling her I moved to the back to listen to her lungs and she says that's not where my heart is and it's just so so cute they're so direct and honest and another kid just looks at my badge and says you look really funny in that picture (laughs) they they'll they're blunt they'll tell you what they think and that just makes you laugh a lot. So in clinic, the kids aren't generally as sick, so I can play with them a lot more. Mm-hmm. And that fits my personality. I love to play with them and well care mostly. And I can form closer relationships usually with these patients because they do come in for well checks more often. And it's fun to watch them grow and learn new skills. And that's pretty cool. In the ED, the best part is no call, probably. I think a lot of doctors like that schedule. Yeah. When you're home you and not working a shift, you're off. You don't have to have your pager on. And you don't have to even follow up on your patients unless you want to. So the shifts are usually 12-hour shifts for mm-hmm. ED. And because they're long shifts like that, they tend to have, I, I forget if it's 12 shifts a month or 16 shifts a month, but mm-hmm. you have a lot of off days that you can arrange all in a clump so you can go on vacation easily. easily. So people like that. But as you get older, those those 12 shifts or 16 shifts, half of them are days and half of them are overnights. And, and with age, those, those night ones are brutal. Yeah. So, and, and some places have a cutoff, like 50 years old, you don't have to do overnights anymore. Oh, really? Uh, some say 55 or whatever, whatever that limit is, it's, it's too, too high. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that at all. I didn't, I never considered that there would be an age limit on doing nights like that. Yeah. That's probably just very kind. <laughs> so it's, it's different with the ED schedule, but what I hate in both settings, I think it's a no brainer, a child abuse, child abuse is the worst. And I don't yeah. really even think that needs much explanation in pediatrics that's just something that you're gonna see but i guess other issues would be like the charting i hate charting the emr i'm slow i'm extra slow because i like to write everything down and be meticulous meticulous about it but the emr is it's just a bulky beast i would say Mm -hmm. and these days your hospital or practice they want you to capture all the charges so you have to write down so many review systems items and and things like that so of course we all have to stay solvent in our 
business of healthcare, but mm-hmm. it, it does drain, make you a little drained to do all those, all that charting. Yeah. Does that ever, do you feel like that ever takes away from people's ability to perform patient care? Just they're that much more exhausted or burnt out or jaded with it all due to having to, you know, get all these insurance requests and charting and all the administrative stuff that goes along with it. I'm sure that has a lot to do with physician burnout because it's like big brothers watching over you. Hey, you didn't bill this correctly or code this correctly. Can you, can you fix that for us? And it's like, wait, I'm just being a doctor here. But I think that in the future, as you all graduate from medical school and enter residency, I hope your new young energy will help fix the system because something does need to change. Right now, it's just an unwieldy and expensive system on the patient end. It's so difficult to navigate. And I'm not smart enough to begin to fix it. But with your youth and energy, I hope next generations of doctors will address that, tackle that issue. Something's got to change. It's not going to work otherwise. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, do you have an instinct as to how it's going to, how it's going to change or how it could change or what needs to happen? I mean, I know everybody, I think, is in agreement that something needs to change, but I don't know that anybody has a great first step. No, or, I don't or even know if I kind of could, outcome in mind. Yeah, I don't even know if I can begin to describe how to repair things that have gotten so spiraled out of control with healthcare costs and all that. But I think one thing that might help is taking, um, giving back power to physicians and not so much the leadership that is involved. I I just feel like there's, I know it's a business and we need people, clinics and hospitals to stay solvent, but it, it gets a little bit much sometimes. So hopefully the balance can be better reset to where doctors can do what they need to do. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, uh, kind of the tragedy of child abuse. Yes. Um, is that something you see pretty commonly? Not commonly, like sometimes it's suspected abuse. You see a bruise and you just have to, you always have it in the back of your mind because you're looking for it. You are that child's advocate. You might be the only person that can report it Mm -hmm. on their behalf because you undress them for their well exams. And so it's a big responsibility. But fortunately, no, not often. I have a funny story of one time I saw a kid in the ED and she had three linear parallel burn marks on her forearm. And I thought, oh gosh, this is like somebody took a curling iron and just pressed it and pressed it and pressed it. Mm -hmm. So we talked to her mom and the story was that her aunt is a hairdresser and has this triple wand curling iron that I'd never seen before and it has three rods and that's what actually fell and burned her and I googled it and I saw the picture of a triple wand curling iron so it totally fit there was nothing suspicious about the behavior of the family or the child so we're able to say comfortably that that's that's fine that that was an accident and not non-accidental trauma yeah wow it's like a double neck guitar that (laughs) <laughs> Led Zeppelin would be playing or something. Well, things you never think about that exist. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess that's a good transition because I kind of wanted to talk about the misconceptions in pediatrics or about pediatrics. Um, is there certain things that people 
think the life of a pediatrician is like that it's actually not like or maybe they don't think about that you have to deal with that that, you, that is something that's pretty common in uh, the practice of a ped doc well i think that and i sure have contributed to this view that uh, pediatricians just play with kids all day play with healthy kids all day <laughs> yeah. but there are plenty of challenging diagnoses and treatment plans that we encounter on a regular basis we might get kids with anemia or fever of unknown origin or chronic abdominal pain and behavioral issues so there is a lot to think about every day and being that point person to advocate for our healthy habits, we're dealing for so, with so much more than just well-child care. And imagine if we didn't heavily promote immunizations, what our world would be like. I mean, it's not just COVID right now. We're waiting with bated breath for that immunization to be available. But if kids didn't get all their other immunizations, that would be a bigger, a much bigger crisis we'd be in all the time. Uh, I guess that's one of the misconceptions. We we do have some chronic care kids that are, are more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the issues, I, I it's kind of an elephant in the room sometimes, is that not all doctors make a ton of money and pediatricians make the less, the least probably in all fields. Yeah, and I, I was actually I looking that up yesterday um, <laughs> just as I was scrolling through some stats and they do according to uh, my, my resources as of yesterday. They're the <laughs> right. least paid physicians you know, in the world. And, right, which and, seems wrong because we are taking care of our future generations. So yeah. I feel like we should be compensated appropriately. But really, it's because we are not procedure oriented and procedures are what generate charges yeah. for hospitals and clinics. So basically, our salaries are lower for that reason. And mm. and some people are like, well, golly, it's a lot more than what I make right now as a student, zero or negative, That's whatever. <laughs> Um, when you have considerable debt after medical school, I feel like that might be something, if you're on the fence about peds versus family practice versus something else, primary care, then you might take that into consideration. But if you love peds, go for it. That's not, that shouldn't deter you Yeah, because you can live within your means. Yes. Um, you, you seem to be uh, passionate about that. You, you pointed at the camera as you said that. <laughs> Is that is that a, a particular you know uh, passion of yours to to tell people that or to uh, you know talk about that aspect of uh, being a doc is living I within think your means? So uh, living within your means is important because you students are in debt from the get go, right? And then you go into residency, you make a, a bigger chunk of money, and then you sign that contract for this big job, and you're like, oh my gosh, six figures, I'm going to be rich. Mm-hmm. But that money goes quickly. So you need to be very careful about your spending and pay the debt down as soon as your, your school debt down as soon as you can. Because, you know, interest, that is a big deal. And it'll take years if you don't carefully manage that. So definitely keep your yearnings below your earnings is what my husband Ooh, would I like that. Say. I don't heard, think I've ever heard that, but it I seems like that original. should be ubiquitous. <laughs> it I should love be. It. I'm pretty sure you didn't make that up. Well, but. a friend of mine, uh, Cameron, shout out to Cameron Stone. He is, uh, yeah. I, I think he was uh, in his uh, master's in business administration program and telling me, um, that the number one 
I guess maybe number one and two professions that go into debt are doctors and lawyers. And I think it's for the exact reasons you just said is you're, you know, living (laughs) as a student for so long and then you, you make some money and now you got to get the the cool car and the big house and the, and the three yachts and whatever else people need to buy. Yeah. Uh, And if you're in primary care, that is not going to work for you. It's going to have to be some careful spending. It's not like you're poor, but you need to be able to smartly manage your money for sure. And there's taxes. You go into this bigger tax scale, right? That And have to pay a bigger portion. So it does go away fast. (laughs) Well, since we're on the topic, um, we have some listener questions that I didn't send to you before. Okay. Um, but I have them here and I'll just get into one of them that is on this topic because it talks yeah. about um, the relatively uncompetitive nature of getting into a pediatrics. The sound you just heard was silly old me knocking my recording device out of the jack on my computer, but noticed right away and restarted it. Here we go. And through the magic of editing, we are back, everybody. Sorry about that. Um, so I was, we were just talking about, um, pediatrics being, you know, not very compensated as a specialty in medicine. And I was just about to read a listener question, which, uh, talks about the relatively uncompetitive nature of pediatrics and how that plays a role in selecting future physicians for the specialty. And that's basically what the question, uh, says here. And, Um, It talks about pediatrics um, pays toward the bottom of the spectrum, Uh even within the primary care profession, which we talked about uh, just recently already. And um, what I also was looking up recently was that some of the lowest board score requirements are in pediatrics. I imagine that that has to do with just they're not compensated well and thus the, the highest compensated jobs in medicine are the most competitive I was wondering if you just had any thoughts on that or how we could uh, change that for the better. Well, I think that in general, even if it's the least competitive area to go into, I think that it's important for you to do what you think will love and will sustain you throughout your career as a doctor. Mm -hmm. And if that's peds, that's great. And I feel like you should worry about yourself. You should be the best doctor that you can be. And that's your number one. And whether or not the the market bears a better rate for you in the future when they realize how valuable pediatricians are, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole nother issue that I really don't want to worry about. It's it's only worrisome if you are needing to pay back loans and you have to do the financial burden benefit ratio and and think about those details in life. But for the most part, I think you should follow what you think your heart will be happiest in. Because as you know, there's a lot of burnout in medicine. And if you go into a field just for the big bucks, that's going to be a problem for you later. You're not going to last. It won't be worth it. It's not worth it. And pediatrics programs, I went to a small program in West Texas, in Lubbock, Texas, yeah. and people probably haven't even heard about it. And even when I went there, it was because of my wilder days in college. And <laughs> so I got into this West Texas school and I went for it. It was one of the best programs that I can, when I compare myself to other uh, residents and other doctors that I'm working with now or more recently, 
I got excellent training. I did, I know just as much as they do, and it was standard. And it, West Texas actually was a hub for all, that Lubbock school was a, a, a hub, sorry, I can't talk. It was a catch-all for all of West Texas. So we saw a lot of stuff. And it wasn't, it, although it was a small program, it was actually excellent education for me. So don't be fooled by where the program is, the size of it. Just look at, ideally you want to look at the numbers of how many uh, different types of things they see. And you can ask them that when you're on interviews. Okay. Uh, what's your, what's your ICU size? For example, how many beds do you have in this, in your general peds ward? So you can get an idea of what you're going to see with that program and it might just be just right it doesn't have to be a huge program to be a place that you can learn well from and again it's up to you to be a good doctor even yeah. if your peers may not be as strong so do it if you love it if you think you're gonna love it yeah that's that's good words of advice and i didn't mean to imply that uh there's a, a you know, big difference in the quality of physician or the quality of student who is going to each of these programs or going no, to no, each specialty. I, did, no, no. Did I sound mad? Because I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I just wanted to clarify. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you to whoever wrote that in. I don't have everyone's name on these. Um, okay. So little more disorganized than usual, but actually that brings me to another listener question, mm -hmm. which um, talks about kind of the different paths you can go from pediatric residency, um, because we're still on the topic. Um, the question says, how does the life slash career of a general pediatrician or PCP differ from some, a pediatrician who has done a specialized fellowship such as GI, cardiology, or uh, or other sort of specialties that you can go into from there. Um, you kind of talked about the difference between doing procedures or being more of a primary care, less procedure-based uh, practice. Yes, yes. So in general pediatrics, you're going to see a well child care. And that's such a big part of your practice that it's going to be way different from any of the specialty situations or specialty areas that you could go into that are particularly procedure oriented, like GI, for example. So in well child care, you get that opportunity to form better relationships. Although there's a caveat to that. <clears throat> These days, it seems that people change insurance a lot and it's yeah. out of their control, which doctor they're going to be assigned to maybe from Medicaid or other insurance. Yeah. So I actually just had some. that problem myself uh, in, in my own insurance, oh, yeah. got on the wife's insurance when we got married and uh, I had to switch doctors. Yeah, so although, yeah, and it's, that's kind of sad because continuity is something that we strive for in medicine, in primary care, the best we can, because we'll know, get to know the patient the best, but because of these insurance things, sometimes they end up going to other doctors, but when you can have them for a prolonged stretch of time, you get to follow their course and help them grow, and this helps you in their in their education as well. Because at one visit, maybe you'll focus more on nutrition, and on the next one, maybe you'll focus more on safety. Because you really don't have time to give them all that education that you want to. So that's a that's a really nice part of see the continuity. Aspect. Yeah. Did you find that? I imagine that so many people trying to get into primary care are doing so because they want some continuity of care with patients. They want to follow people through their 
whole lives or through their whole, you know, adolescence or whatever, in a longer frame of time than just uh, one visit. But then you have gotten to the kind of the emergency urgent care side of things and you probably had a lot less of that. Yeah, it's almost like my husband and I should have switched places, but I was the better stay-at-home parent. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I really did miss the continuity part when working in urgent care. You really just don't, you don't ever remember their names or anything. Yeah, and like, I you think almost I've never, seen you before. Right, right, you never yeah. see them again. Uh, and I would joke at the end of the visits from urgent from ER visits, I'd say, okay, I hope we meet again, but in the grocery store or something along those lines. But really, you never see them again. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that's hard for uh, for someone with your personality wanting to form <laughs> deeper relationships with people. Yeah, I mean, people are fun. People, most people, I'm not going to say everybody, that's like rose-colored glasses. Yeah. But a lot of people are just so kind and wonderful to interact with and get to know and it's just a social thing and enjoyable makes your day enjoyable but in urgent care yeah you you don't really get to know them but they put your their trust in you right. i've told students before some people have a 300 dollars or even a 500 dollars ed copay so they've come to you because they trust you and they need your help and that's a different kind of rewarding uh relationship that you have with them because yeah. immediately they're in need of great help and you can provide it if you're a good doctor with a good bedside manner. So they're, they're both rewarding in different ways. And I think you were asking about <clears throat> what else I do in PEDS, how it's different from fellowships. I think yeah. fellowships, yeah, you do different procedures and you just focus on that one part like there's PEDS derm and there's infectious disease which you, which you might consult on patients in the hospital setting more so than seeing them in clinic. Maybe you'll see them in clinic and follow up, but there's a lot of different, uh, there are differences with the specialty versus primary care. For us, it's all daytime clinic, eight, eight to five usually, and then some overnight call. But for the specialty services, sometimes they do have to answer phone calls for the ER and other clinics too. Right, right. Well, that's, uh, it's kind of nice to know and nice to remember that you can go into a primary care specialty such as PEDS, but you're not necessarily relegated to the world of primary care. You can still specialize from there. You can be a specialist even though you, you know, went into a general or broad category of medicine. Um, I kind of wanted to transition into talking about uh, patient education. Yes. Because <clears throat> um, you mentioned it earlier talking about as much as you can talking to the uh, patient themselves when they're old enough and ignoring the parents. Um, <laughs> I think that's how you put it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what kind of what, what kinds of things are we talking about? I know it definitely depends on, you know, what brings them in or, or what's going on with each patient or family. Um, but how much nutrition counseling are you able to give? Um, how much, you know, are you talking about, uh, you know, smoking cessation or not even yeah. starting smoking. What about right, right. sexual health or <clears throat> mental health or any of these things that you have thoughts on? Um, yeah. Interested. So it really does, again, depend on the age group. <clears throat> so as they get older, we do talk about all different things, but a lot of times patients will come in with questions. So we will mostly focus it 
based on what they want to know about. But as far as if they don't have questions or they're not very talkative and they're a teenager and I've kicked parents out of the room, then I will use that heads mnemonic that everybody learns asking about the home situation, education, how are you doing in school? And <clears throat> do any of your friends use alcohol and have you used alcohol and then drugs and then sexual activity and suicide? So we'll touch on each of those and that's our basic basic agenda for teenage patients when we're seeing them on their own for the most part. And as far as counseling, I if they don't have much for me in way of answering or in way of follow-up questions, then I'll start teaching them a little bit about things yeah. like that. Is it hard to uh, motivationally interview a 10-year-old or, you know, uh, someone who's just younger, a pediatric patient than it it would be to do, you know, for a 40 year old patient. I guess you have to do it in a developmentally appropriate way. And I almost feel like kids are more receptive and adults. Well, they can be very set in their ways, obviously. So I feel like the motivational interview can have a bigger influence. I had a patient one time who would pick at all her scabs and I was new to the practice in primary care. And I told her mom told me, yeah, she just picks at him. She always does, always has, and we can't get her to stop. And I told her, well, I don't think you should do that. You can get an infection. And after that day, she stops. Like I feel they're like they're more moldable, pliable, and you in a position of trust as a healthcare provider can make a difference in their lives. So, so we do it. And motivational interviews, uh, they're a little different. They're not quite so formal like you would do in adults, but we can teach them things yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Um, kind of on the same topic, um, obesity and type 2 diabetes are definitely happening earlier and earlier yes. in the American population. Yes. Um, how does that really present in the primary care pediatric setting? What, it, what can you do as a as a physician to to help well before they reach teenagehood i will talk to the families about obesity and healthy habits with regard to nutrition because if a child enters adolescence obese then they are likely to stay obese the rest, as an adult mm-hmm. so we have this opportunity to intervene with, before they get to that start stage And so we talk about just choosing healthy things, not having junk food around the home, being a good role model for your kids. Because if you're eating unhealthy, they're going to eat unhealthy. They always do what the parents do. So we do talk about nutrition. It's pretty general, though, as far as how much uh, of this food or that food. If they need more help, then we often have nutrition services or dietitian that we can uh, involve in the care of that patient. So as far as specific nutrition counseling, we don't do that much. Yeah. But yes, obesity is a big problem. And then actually a few years ago, <clears throat> it was looking like things were getting better with Mo- Michelle Obama's program and, and telling people to eat healthy from a young age. These, these, it looked like it was getting better. But now when we review all the data from the past decade or so, it hasn't really it yeah. made that much difference. We're still rising in our obesity rates, maybe not as quickly, but it's still going up. So we have work to do. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think I was talking to our last guest, which was uh, Dr. Tolefson, who was kind of representing the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. 
Um, yeah, and, yeah. And she had a lot to say about that topic that, you know, we, we and we talked about that the idea is that knowledge is just not enough in right, these right. things or, you know, everyone who smokes knows it's bad for you. Everyone <laughs> who eats uh, potato chips knows it's not as good as a celery stick or, you know, whatever example you want to give. Um, but, and so, uh, you know, Mich- Michelle Obama can promote and we can all promote these things. That's great. But it maybe makes a dent and, uh, you know, initially, but over time we need bigger systems in place and, and not just policy, but just a, a culture change around how we're going to approach nutrition and dietary advice and, and all that. So I yeah. agree. It's a whole country's problem. It's not any individual family's problem. It's what the kids are getting at school and what's advertised to children and McDonald's at every corner, things like that. It all influences our culture. Yeah. And we've got to change that to yeah. make make a dent in this obesity problem. Yeah. But at the same time, that just made me think that Yes, that kind of makes it sound overwhelming for an individual physician to yes. say, oh, wow, what could I possibly, how could one physician or one patient possibly really make a, a real uh, you know, effort to change the obesity the problem in America? Right, right. But like you just kind of made me think that, well, yeah, you can definitely change one person and they can live a better life because of it or, you know, live a healthier existence because of whatever counseling or input that the trusted physician has. Yeah, you you choose your battles with your patients. And if mm-hmm. nutrition is what you want to focus on, then yes, that's what you'll follow up with them on and make sure that they're, or help them make the right decisions and choices and encourage them along when they're on the right path. Best you can, you can affect people's lives one by one. And that's the beauty of the doctor-patient relationship. It is so special and different from any other healthcare provider or other occupation we have this relationship with patients that's different and in that way we can obtain uh, gain their trust and make them do different things and and in other ways we we can do simple things i've told my students as an example in cardiology sometimes that we can listen to someone's heart after hearing 500 or a thousand or however many normal heartbeats and we might say this one sounds a little different and that happened to me I referred this one three-year-old to cardiology and she ended up having open heart surgery for something called core triatrium which I still don't know exactly what it means <laughs> I won't quiz you something, on it yeah don't quiz me on it but basically something along the lines of having a th- more than one atrium I think but but anyway you'll have to look that up but just are being there to tell them that one thing might change their behavior. And that's the chances, that's what we want to put in the hat, the chance that they will listen to us at a, after a visit. Yeah, which I, it's funny because you mentioned that just that last story made me think that, yeah, you're never going to get a chance to really affect everybody all at once or really have a, a big effect, especially if you're just a just 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 a primary care physician seeing patients one by one but you know you're not going to really be able to affect all of you know strep throat or all of asthma but you can affect you know one person at a time as you see them and 
and give them a, a better chance at, at a healthy life. Yes, yes. And really, your words have so much more weight than elsewhere. So they might hear something on TV and they'll come ask you about it or they read it on the Internet. They'll come ask you. And oftentimes your word will be the final. You're the expert. So I think that's important to remember that yeah. you might or might not change their lives, but you could. You have that potential. Yeah, these are some difficult things to, to talk about. Sometimes people's weight. Um, I also kind of want to talk about mental health and sexual health as it pertains to the pediatrician. How, how much are you seeing or getting an opportunity to, to treat mental health um, or you know, sexual issues in uh, the pediatric population? Well, certainly there's been a rise in mental health issues in pediatric patients, and we don't have enough child psychiatrists or psychologists in the work field to be able to refer them in a timely fashion yeah. for help. So we do do some of the basic counseling for that. And we can talk about all sorts of sensitive topics from mental health to reproductive health, including STIs, to substance use with adolescents without their parents present. Mm -hmm. So we do. When we need to, we step in and counsel them as best we can. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've always really been curious about this subject that I really have never really asked about or gotten an answer to. And maybe it's just not that complicated, but we always talk in medical school about the ethics of confidentiality mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. who has, um, who you have to remain confidential to. Yes. Um, for instance, a uh, teenager who comes in with a, a sexual health issue. Yes. Um, and so you don't, uh, you have to not tell anybody if the um, patient doesn't want you to. Exactly. Including the pa patient's parents. But I always kind of wondered how it works in, in reality. You got a 16-year-old female or male, they're coming in, they have some sort of complaint for, for the doctor to see, and they don't want to tell their parents. But then who gets the bill for it, and how does that work because i'm uh, surely it it ends up you know on the awkward uh, awkward i guess yeah <laughs> it ends up with the parents finding out when they went to the doctor and they never right, tried. They, their daughter went to the doctor how does how does that work in reality is what i'm asking so sometimes the clinic will just write it off that can be a special situation, especially if it's unexpected. They come in and you don't realize that they're not with their parent for that visit and that and they tell you at that time that they don't want their parent to know, then it can be written off. In other cases, uh, we Do, can let me let me just interrupt. Does writing yeah. it off mean just we, eating it? Just, eating the cost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we just absorb the cost. And we often would make a dummy chart, so a separate chart for that patient that the parent would never see or get a hold of, and they would never get a bill for that those encounters. In other cases, uh, for example, maybe reproductive health issues, we could actually refer to Planned Parenthood or other sliding scale fee okay. type clinics so that they can pay as they can. And that works too. So whatever the case, we get them help. If they need it, we, we help them. Yeah. We don't, we try not to turn them away, obviously, because if we don't take care of them and if we don't promise them confidentiality, they go away and don't get care at all. So whatever we can do to protect them and keep them in the system, we do. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, I want to just kind of be conscious of time. And I usually ask uh, the guest how much time we have if you have a, a, a time you need to get out of here at. Uh, no, oh, okay. I didn't really pay attention either to time. That's fine. Okay. Thank well, you. Yep. Because uh, I just have a couple more topics I want to get into. And okay. we could probably talk for a long time on just a couple of topics. But I wanted to talk about your transition into teaching because mm-hmm. I always want to explore people's um, career paths and all the opportunities yeah. that uh, are afforded. Um, you know, once you go to medical school, you do a residency, you can practice as a clinician, you can do a lot of things. And I want to yes. hear about your life as a, as a teacher. Um, so you, a couple of years ago, you transitioned away from clinical medicine and into teaching med students. Yeah, actually I've been teaching for about eight years now at Rocky Vista. Okay. And during that time when I first started, I was still in the urgent care situation with Parker Children's ED, mm-hmm. and it was a lot. And then all of a sudden, Children's decided to have a new policy where you had to take a minimum number of shifts per month. And for me, I, I thought, oh, I'm barely treading water with the one shift a month I was doing at the time when the kids were really little or two shifts a month. Yeah. And I could I couldn't commit and I had to make a decision if I would continue teaching or continue in my clinical work along with taking care of my kids along with my sanity which is the art that I do and so I decided not to go back to clinical work at that time I thought maybe I could transition to a different clinical role where there wasn't a minimum and there were some opportunities through Kaiser they would have I wanted a newborn exam physician who would just go in and do newborn checks and Mm -hmm. circumcisions and things like that. So I had a few different options that I was looking into, but that's when I got my agent for my book career, which is a whole nother topic. Yeah. But we can talk about that. I would love to, (laughs) I'd love to just have you promote your, your books if you, if you want to, because I know, I know it's a big part of your life now. It is a big part of my life now. It was a hard decision to move away from clinical practice because I feel like I loved when I was able to teach my students with the fresh on my mind from last night's on call or right. work, what my what I saw that night and I could really easily recall the details and, and share them with the students. So now I have to reach a lot farther back to be able to find stories like that. Uh, but it was more sane for me to work non-clinically in academia and continue the art and continue taking care of the kids because the whole time my husband was full-time clinician. So for our family, that's what made the most sense. Yeah. So then my, my books, they just kind of took off a few years ago. I got an agent because I'm part of a society of children's book writers and illustrators and we have conferences and then this agent picked me up. And from there, I have had a lot of different book deals. That's so. amazing. Here, throw out some of the names of, uh, of your books. <laughs> My best-selling book, which just sold, we're on our ninth printing, maybe 72,000 copies is Counting on Catherine. It's for maybe ages four to eight or so, and it's about Catherine Johnson. If you caught that movie, Hidden Figures, which you probably didn't because you've been in medical school. I actually missed it, but I've been dying to see it. <laughs> I really have. I want to I wanna watch yeah. that movie. Okay, it, Counting on Catherine. Yeah, black female mathematicians. Uh, the movie was about a group of black female mathematicians that worked for NASA back in the 60s, even the yeah. 50s, when they probably started with the whole race to the moon. 
and no one knew about them. They were not written in history. And we found this one woman that had these engineers and mathematicians in her life started writing a story about different people. And that became the movie. Katherine Johnson is the focus of our book. And she's one of those amazing women who helped people get to the moon she would do the calculations and john glenn would like call before he had to lift off and say hey did did the girl check the numbers before he would fly and it's just an amazing story that needed to be told so i think yeah that was my most famous one that's awesome what are some other titles oh one girl comes out october 7th or 6th i forget it's It's coming up One Girl, and this one I illustrated for Andrea Beatty, who is a New York Times bestselling author of the Rosie Revere Engineer series. So a lot of girl power is what this is about. But One Girl, she wrote based on watching a documentary. I think it was called Girls Rising. But basically, it was a documentary talking about the plight of girls all over the world, about 131 million of them who have no access to education. So this book is supposed to bring awareness of that to the general public so that we can make donations and change the world in that way. So that's coming up and I'm really excited about. Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're really, they're really, they're fun projects, a different way of changing the world. Where, where would people go to find your stuff? Okay. They're pretty much everywhere online. So if you go to amazon.com, you'll see uh, most of my books. I'm working on several right now, so they'll come along the way. But right now I think there's maybe six or seven that are on Amazon, but actually I'm not supposed to promote Amazon, the big box, big chain kind of thing. Find your local indie bookstore, like the bartender. (laughs) We'll we'll bleep that part out. (laughs) Okay. Yes. 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 Go to your independent. Anywhere but Amazon. There you go. There you go. I agree. Um, so cool. Um, I think I had another question about that, but um, I'm not remembering it right now. So let's, uh, for the (laughs) moment, at least get back into talking about, uh, teaching med students. Okay. Um, do you, is there, is there a way that you teach? Is there a method of teaching or a a mission statement that guides you? Is there, you know, do you have a, a structure to the way that you teach? I know that the med school itself, you know, tells you what to teach and what the curriculum is. Um, but do you have a guiding force in, in that part of your life? I usually tell my students when I get started teaching them that my number one goal is to help them on their way to becoming the best doctor they can be. Maybe you heard that because you were in my group one time. Yep. But I'm not an expert in adult medicine, but in my role as facilitator, for example, I can share how to think like a physician. I tell students a lot of times that medicine is detective work plus acting. So you have to do the detective work. You have to figure out what the diagnosis is. And you have to know to tease out the truth because sometimes they'll tell you something and you're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. So can you explain that further for me? And then you can get to that diagnosis. But the acting part is also really important. And you didn't know that coming to medical school. Why am I being an actor? Well, no matter how worried or sad or scared or angry that you are, you need to maintain that professional demeanor so patients will feel comfortable with you. You can't fall apart on them, even if the patient next door just coded and you have to keep moving. 
and give them the same attention and time and patience that they deserve yeah. while your colleague is running the code. So acting and detective work. I love it. I remember kind of on that topic, you and actually combining the last two topics, one being girl power and one being uh, what you just talked about there. <laughs> um, <laughs> the um, one thing I, that I remember from uh, being in your small group in uh, clinical medicine class, we uh, you, you kind of I, th- I might have been the only male in the group at this time. And I remember you talking to specifically the females in the group and talking about the professionalism, not doctor to patient, but doctor to doctor or resident to doctor or med sc- student to doctor. And you were you were talking about the importance of you're a female in medicine. And you're going to want to, you're going to just have to at least go one extra step to be you know, on the same level or be, sorry, I guess respected on the same level as men. So it's important to, you know, I guess kind of alter your voice act is basically what you're saying right now. A little bit. Yeah. Um, Because it's not a level playing field and it, and it won't be for a while yet because we've come a long way, but there's still a lot more to do to make everything more equal. So for women, especially in medicine, even though we make up the majority, I think the last I checked, I think, um, I think as of the last couple of years, at least in med school, I'm not sure about in the workforce. Right. Right. In pediatrics, for sure. We are the majority, but when we deal with male pediatricians, the older ones, especially who've been at it for a while, some of them have not been woke in that sense. So you, we all need to maintain that level of professionalism that will make them earn their, make them trust us and respect us just even more so. And I think the story you were referring to is how I have a really small, tiny voice when I talk to my family. But when I talk in my doctor role, for example, for this podcast, Mm -hmm. I do try to use a firmer voice at a, maybe an octave lower. Yeah. I remember that was your example. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It seems ridiculous and so superficial, but at the same time, when you enter a patient room or if you're calling a doctor for a referral and you're interacting with that other person, they have like in one minute, they're going to judge you. They're going to make that, you're going to have made that first impression. So it's very important for you to put your best foot forward in that sense. And that means acting as much in that role of professional demeanor as you can. And that doesn't always come naturally to people. You're right. And I kind of took it as uh, good advice as well. Uh, You, the time I'm talking about, you're specifically talking to the female med students that I was, uh, you know, standing next to at the time, because you were talking about running a code, you were saying, (laughs) if you, you know, talk in a higher, more girly, quote unquote, voice, then that's going to come off differently than if you bring your tone down, and you talk more firmly. And I said, yeah, that works for me too, I think. I'll take take that advice. It really is probably a blanket advice for anyone, but it seems that we women can be more timid in some situations. So we need to make sure that we're not doing that. And of course, this day and age, a lot more of us are uh, feminists and, and promoting equality and no misogyny, all of that. But we still have to be mindful of these things so we can stay on even footing with everybody else. Yes. Well, um, I think that's a a pretty good note to go out on. 
Um, if you're, if you're happy, I'm happy. Um, do we, do you want to add anything else? Um, is there anything we didn't talk about that you definitely, uh, want to get to and tell the world? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm looking through my notes too. No rush, no pressure. I think the other one, some of the other questions were more general and maybe not something that I need to specifically address as far as like how to change medical education in general. That's a tough one, one, but affordability would be better. And I'm all about opening things up to diverse populations. And really just the cost alone is going to scare everyone away, everyone. And to have better distribution of care, health disparities right now in certain populations, for example, you know the black population, they they don't trust doctors. Some of them don't because of a long history of not being treated fairly mm-hmm. by doctors. Yeah. And having more black doctors to take care of black patients would actually help that. And the same with uh, Asian people, if they don't have they don't speak English. It'd be nice to have that diverse population where a doctor can speak that language. It's just all about connecting with other human beings. And so having that big price tag on a medical education is a problem. It's a big obstacle for so many. So that's, that's the only thing I wanted to say about changing education. No, that is, that is a good thing to talk about and i like we kind of talked about earlier i wish either one of us had even a clue of how to how to fix it actually start that process because yeah yeah who who doesn't want uh to get that going in the right direction exactly and i i did have another note here about hopefully the whole bullying culture yeah tell me racism and misogyny i hope that all goes away in residency it's so old-fashioned and outdated but i know it can still happen talk about a little bit of what you mean there well basically the uh, basically a sexual assault and harassment in medical education in the residency level that still happens so i am part of med twitter or i follow med twitter Mm -hmm. and sometimes you get some of the most up-to-date spilling their hearts out online and people will still make racist or misogynist comments and they can't get away with it as much now practice directors program directors will get in trouble now because we have these this forum this social media platform that we can widely announce things like that to the world but it's still happening and it needs to go away back in my day for sure there was still a lot of that bullying where people would throw things or just act out on the students and they would take their own stress in their lives as a physician as an excuse to act this way but i I just feel like that's that's wrong. You don't need to be shamed to learn, right? You can learn with a good teacher that doesn't have to be mean and talking down to you. So I think it's all going away slowly, but we still need to be mindful of that. Yeah. All right. I love it. Let's go out on a, uh, a note of equality. And I hope you don't mind yes. if I keep you around on the Zoom for just a, a few minutes to pick your brain about uh, pediatric oh, yeah, um, yeah, rotation fun. that I have coming up starting <laughs> in about a week. I'll just say thank you so much for being on the show. 
Uh, I really, really do appreciate your time and all the things that we've talked about today. You have uh, a lot of great insights into pediatrics. Thanks so much, Ross. Thanks for inviting me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope these interviews are informative, interesting, entertaining. Basically, I hope they have value to you because I find hearing directly from physicians doing different and interesting things in primary care to be greatly valuable and informative. So don't forget to send questions regarding obesity medicine for Dr. Wendy Sinta to the primary care podcast at gmail.com by October 24th of this year. And once again, thanks to Dr. Dow for keeping it real and talking to us about her life and career. And I just hope you tune in next time. So take care, everyone. Much love. That was just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though, friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared, and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized, went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires, and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome, and then I came to be, learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff. All grown up, I got a job now and showing up. I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned. My appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time. And then I met you, lovely and smooth. You quickly removed my modern man's blues. I wanna celebrate every breath that I take, cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait. So, baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. But I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden Plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain As I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder Am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said, hey baby Instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin Let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch Don't sprint Take it slow, protect your soul Travel long and far, but make sure to come home Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going And gives you the power and the freedom to grow Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first It was simpler when the uterus was so big Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. 
All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.